Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Jason L. Kuby, Executive Vice President of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Our guest today is Byron Reese, an entrepreneur, speaker, author, and futurist. Byron also is the CEO of J.J. Kent, a startup that focuses on artificial intelligence applications. Byron, I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So I've got to ask a little bit about your background. I'm curious about how you became interested in the intersection of all of these exciting topics, technology, business, science, and history. And I've also got to ask, how does, how does one become a futurist? I think I was born at a fortuitous time because oftentimes there's a technology or some happening that kind of defines a whole generation. And I just happened to be born when it was kind of this explosion of technology. I got out of university at 1991, moved to the Bay Area to try to make my fortune, like I guess many a gold rush pioneer before me. So I just got into technology there. I I didn't have a a technical background. And then I got into artificial intelligence and had some success with that. And I started getting lots of invitations to give talks. And good speakers, good speakers give the same speech over and over. And I'm a bad speaker because I would always write a different talk. And people would always say, what do you think about the future of blank? What is the future of transportation? What's the future of this? What's the future of that? And I would write something new. And then after a while, I was like, there's a common theme here. And I should start writing books about this. So it never was a conscious decision. The future is kind of, to me, the most interesting topic there is right now. Because no matter what happens, I think we have a sense that they're going to be like, big things, big things are afoot. Big things are happening. Your work certainly covers a lot of interesting topics, and we're really excited to connect because the theme of this issue of Virginia Economic Review is focused on industries of the future. I'm, I'm interested. What, what emerging technologies do you think have the greatest potential for transformation, whether in society or industry or other areas of life? The basic nature of technology, kind of the thing that it does, is it amplifies human ability. You can lift more bricks with a forklift than you can yourself. You know, So we build these technologies to amplify what we're able to do. And throughout history, they usually come like one at a time, and we can kind of absorb them. We're in this odd moment where there's a lot of things happening at once. There's obviously computation and artificial intelligence, which is the main thing I write about. There's robotics. If computers are getting machines to think like we do, robots are getting them to physically do the kinds of things we did. There are new kinds of materials that are being made, new ways to generate power. There's nanotechnology, which is how things take on new properties when they're at the microscopic scale. There's biotechnology, where we're learning a lot of the secrets of life itself and how we can harness that. And then there's blockchain. I'm not that interested in cryptocurrency per se, but I'm very interested in blockchain because it's a technology that you don't really have to understand how it works, but it's useful to know what it does. Most of our society kind of functions because of these trusted intermediaries. You and I can transact business not because we know and trust each other, but we both trust the bank or Visa. There's always something in the middle. The courthouse is where the the definitive titles are all kept and the bank where the definitive balances. Blockchain is a technology whereby people can deal directly with each other without having to trust each other, but they can do it confidently. And so it just is going to kind of just restructure a lot of fundamental things. So I would say that's it. AI, robotics, new materials, new ways to generate power, nanotechnology, biotechnology, and blockchain, I would say would come at the top of my list. 
Well, you've just sketched out a big list, and I'm wondering if you could kind of put this all into historical perspective. One of your books is called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. So I'm interested in the title, The Fourth Age. There's an obvious question there. What were the first three ages, and what characteristics make up this fourth age? Humanity kind of goes along a trajectory, and something really big happens and changes everything. And I think the first one of these is when we got language, which is a technology. It's our singular technology as a species. It allows us to coordinate our actions. We got it at the same time we controlled fire because we were cooking food, and that allowed us to consume more calories. We grew these big brains and developed language. And the second one was, in my telling, would be agriculture. And it wasn't agriculture per se, but agriculture made us settle down, and we had cities. And cities are where we got the division of labor. And the division of labor is where like, all our prosperity comes from, because you specialize, and you specialize, and you specialize. We're all better off for it. And then the third one, third one was when two technologies happened at the same time, just a coincidence, and they were writing and the wheel. Got them both 5,000 years ago. And with those two things, you had everything you needed to create a nation state because you could promulgate laws and collect taxes and, and so forth. I think those were the big kind of turning points where technology really changed things. And so I posit that we're at this fourth one where these technologies are going to radically transform the world. When I talk on this topic, I, I only show one graph, and it's, it's this line. It's the average world income for the last 2,000 years. I first saw it at the front of Matt Ridley's book, The Rational Optimist. For 1,750 years, nothing happens. For 1,750 years, the average income of the world didn't change. And then about, about 1,750, it turned and shot straight up. And what happened then was the scientific method. We learned this trick of being able to take what we knew and add to it and know more and add to that and add to that and add to that. I think with these technologies, that line is going to just shoot up as far as the eye can see. Because we're at this point where technology is really multiplying what we're able to do more. Computers famously double in capability about every two years. And most technologies behave that same way. They double and double and double and double. What that means is that it took human civilization 10,000 years to make your laptop. But in two years, it will be twice as powerful. And then mm. in two years, it'll be twice as power. In two years, it'll be twice as powerful. And, and so what happens is you get up to this place you know, when we're creating 10,000 years of progress every two years. You focus on those topics in your writings and talk about the relationship between AI and automation in the workplace. So what are your thoughts on the ways that automation will reshape the workplace and also the workforce? I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the half-life of a job is. And I think it's about 50 years. So I think every 50 years, we lose about half of our jobs. And I think it's been going on like that for 250 years. I don't have a sense that it's any faster or slower now than that. You say, wow, we lose half our jobs every 50 years. Why do we generally have full employment? Like, how can that be? Imagine kind of a bar graph. And on the far left, you have, and you're going to draw for jobs. On the far left, you have low pay, low skill, low training required jobs. Like, I don't know, an order taker at a fast food restaurant. Then on the far right picture, you have all the high-tech new jobs. 
like a geneticist. And what technology does is it destroys all the jobs down at the bottom and it creates new ones at the top. And when that happens, it isn't that those people that lost that job become geneticists or whatever. What happens is everybody just shifts up one notch. So a college professor may become a geneticist. Then a high school biology teacher gets the job at the college. Then the substitute teacher gets hired on full time at the high school, all the way down the line. The real question you have to ask is, could everybody in this country do a job a little bit harder than the job they have today? And I think the answer is yes. That's 250 years of economic history in this country. Technology destroys these kind of highly automatable, low-skill kinds of things and creates these new ones that pay more. And that's why you can destroy half your jobs every 50 years but still have full employment and rising income. And if that is true, it does suggest jobs of the future are going to be a little different. What I encourage people to do is look at your day and ask yourself, where can I use technology to destroy stuff I'm doing at the bottom that I shouldn't be doing, that are a waste of my time? Just what am I doing that, that I could just automate away? And what are new things I could create, new opportunities I could create with technology so that you shift yourself up? And that's how you never get obsolete. You're always kind of trying to apply technology to automate parts of your life that are just kind of boring and repetitive. I think they're migrating to be more about relationships, which computers cannot do, right? You had the automatic teller machine come out and everybody's like, well, so much for tellers. But then it's like, no, we have more now because the teller job becomes kind of a relationship job where it's like, well, maybe you need a student loan or we got this software to do simple contracts. Does that mean the lawyers lost out? No. They have kind of a relationship. Now they help you do estate planning. We get tax software to automate a bunch of it, but that doesn't mean the tax people go out of business. Their jobs become more relationship-driven. Certainly an optimistic take on the trends, the potential of technology. Of course, the same trends are ones that cause quite a bit of anxiety for folks, including people in the workforce. I'm wondering, Byron, how would you respond to those fears of automation? I think part of it is what you've just shared, this sort of notion that robots are going to take over many jobs that exist today. Is it basically what you've just shared or is there more to it? That's largely it, other than to say the media doesn't help. There was a study that came out a few years ago by these guys, Frey and Osborne, and they said in 20 years, 47% of jobs will be gone, or at least that's how it was reported. And people see that, and you know, that's their livelihood. That's how they support their families. That is a frightening thing. And then when you get into it, you see now, they kind of said 47% of things people do in their jobs could be automated, which is very different. My father sold insurance for 30-something years. And I would say what he did, his job kind of changed all through that time. But it didn't mean his job itself went away. There are very few jobs that technology can actually destroy. And that's why you hear the same examples over and over. Most of the time, labor productivity is augmented by technology. I don't want to minimize a couple of things. One, depending on your own situation, you may not profit by your increased productivity. Like if you sell your labor by the hour and let's say you're a checker, and some new software is installed that allows you to check out twice as many people in the same amount of time, your pay doesn't double. So you don't get the benefits of your increased productivity. And that's a real problem. Like that's something you kind of have to figure out, well, how do you solve that? Because a lawyer who kind of sells their work, if they get software that lets them write a will in half the time, they do get to pocket that money. Whoever owns the technology generally gets to pocket the increases. And that's problematic. And then the second thing that's kind of problematic is no matter how you tell people, oh, no, look, it, everybody's just going to shift up a notch. It's still unsettling for the thing that you know how to do, that you know you make your livelihood by, for it to change and for, for you not to 
kind of know where you're going to fit into that. And so I don't ever minimize it like, oh, don't worry, it'll be fine. I want to tell people that we keep full employment in this country, even though we're constantly doing this. I hope that intellectually is reassuring to people, but you can't do that at the expense of not acknowledging that it's very, it's very disorienting. Very disruptive, not only in terms of the sort of depth and breadth, but also the speed that some of these technological disruptions are coming at. So I'm wondering, as we think about talking with policymakers and educational partners that we work with in the economic development space, what sort of skills do you think will be the most valuable in workplaces of the future that are marked by radical technological change? You know, our education system that we have was designed to make factory workers, and it does that very well. If you think about it, it's modeled after a factory, right? You have a manager, a teacher who gives you jobs and tells you if, if you have a question, you raise your hand, you ask your question, you get the answer. They tell you if you did a good job or not. They grade your performance. And if you do well, you get a promotion to the next grade. A bell will ring and you will be given different work to do. It's designed to make factory workers. That isn't generally, though, where people learn job skills. If I were to go back to high school, if I went back in time to 1987, there's only one class I could have taken that would be useful to me today. Can you guess what that is? Hmm. Typing. <laughs> Typing, right? Like, who would, have, who would have guessed? Most of us, what we do for a living, we didn't learn in school. Most of us. And even if you learned the basics of trade, most of your additional knowledge you taught yourself. And that is the human superpower, the ability to teach yourself new things. And the good news is everybody can do it. Everybody can do it. We all, I think, had that experience where you hear about something new and so you like go to the Wikipedia page and then you click on some link and then you follow that and then it's three in the morning. But you know something about it, like you <laughs> learned something new. And that is our superpower. It isn't so much try to think about, oh, what's the newest, latest and greatest job that's about to be made? Okay, a geneticist. Well, I can't learn genetic biology. What am I going to do? It's more about taking the skill set that you have and figuring out how to use technology to amplify what you're able to do and try to incorporate additional technologies to increase your own productivity. We build these better tools that give us more power. Wherever you are in your career, figure out how to apply technology. You know, for years, I've been hearing people say, oh, my gosh. The truck drivers are all going to lose their jobs because we're going to have self-driving cars. And it's like, well, no, because everybody's been saying that there aren't enough people becoming truck drivers. We have this huge shortage of them. You could start being a truck driver today and have a long career before that whole thing is sorted out. Because unless the delivery truck can not only park in front of your house, but leave the package on your front door with an illegible scrawled note. It's not a full solution. You still have to have a person in there. There's an infinite number of jobs in the universe. You pluck them out of the air and you can make one. You can make a job by taking anything, a lump of clay, and putting time and technology to it and make something else worth more, a vase. And whatever the difference between what that clay was worth and what that base is worth, that is a wage. That's how jobs are made. You just pluck things out of the air and say, I can do that. I can give people guided tours of my town or whatever. You invent it out of thin air. Now, if somebody had gone back 25 years in time to 1996-ish and took a web browser and said, look at this, look at this web thing. In 25 years, there's going to be billions of people using this. What do you think is going to happen to jobs? If they had been super smart, here's what they would have said. They would have said, well, 
I bet the stockbrokers are going to have a hard time because people are just trade online. And I bet the travel agents are going to have a hard time. And I bet the yellow pages are going out of business. I bet the newspapers are going to have a hard time because people get their news online. And you know what? You would have been right about everything. But what nobody ever would have said is, oh, there's going to be Etsy and eBay and Facebook and Twitter mm-hmm. and Airbnb and Uber and Lyft. And that's the challenge. It's easy to see what it's going to destroy. And none of us have the imagination to see what it's going to create. If we did, we wouldn't have had the internet for 10 years before we got ride sharing. We wouldn't have had the internet for 10 years before we got things like Airbnb. It just takes time to think of them. But then people pluck that stuff out of the air and say, I could do this. And then all of a sudden, new things are created. The number of things people can do with technology just grows and grows and grows. And we don't have enough people to do them all. I tell people that if all development in artificial intelligence stopped tomorrow, it will probably take us 30 years to do everything we already know how to do. We just haven't had time to do it. There's going to be an ever-increasing shortage of people. It's a great time to be a human because there's going to be all these opportunities competing for relatively few people because there are things that only people can do. Byron, this has been a fascinating conversation. Just wonderful to talk with you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts today with the Virginia Economic Review Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.